Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing refuge recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your refuge recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes. Chapter 8, page 55. Action Engagement. We abstain from all substances and behaviors that could lead to suffering. We practice forgiveness towards all people who we have harmed or been harmed by, including ourselves, through both meditative training and direct amends. Compassion, non-attached appreciation, generosity, kindness, honesty, integrity, and service are our guiding principles. When we commit to recovery, we must have a personal dedication to purifying our actions from the things that cause harm. The minimum commitment necessary for the path toward recovery and freedom is renunciation of violence, dishonesty, sexual misconduct, and intoxication. This is not just for the sake of nobility. It is connected to our understanding of cause and effect, or karma. Mindfulness is a must if we want to be aware of and present with the emotions that provoke harmful actions. First and foremost, an awareness of our inner experience, which includes thoughts, feelings, preferences, emotions, conditioning, and sensations, requires a mind that is free from the obscuring effects of intoxicants. Mind and mood-altering drugs such as alcohol, marijuana, narcotics, barbiturates, and hallucinogens cloud the mind and create an inability to be mindful and fully present for the inner experience. It is clear that the recovery process requires a sober and drug-free mind. This restriction would not apply to the prescribed psychotropic medications that some people need in order to function skillfully in the world. Some addicts may complain that they should be able to continue to indulge if they themselves were not addicted to a particular substance. Take the alcoholic who wishes to smoke marijuana or the heroin addict who wishes to drink alcohol. While recovering addicts may find reason to complain about this abstinence-based approach, it is ultimately necessary because we are taking on a way of life that demands clarity and mindfulness. We follow in the footsteps of the Buddha, and he was clear about the necessity of a fully sober mind in order to awaken and recover our true nature. Yes, this approach asks a lot of us, and it is also and it also promises a lot. Not just a return to the normal suffering of the non-addict's life, but a spiritual awakening, a life of freedom from suffering altogether. Tolerance and compassion. 
From the foundation of a clear, sober mind, we can train ourselves to respond to pain with compassionate investigation and refrain from actions such as retaliation or self-harm that will only lead to more suffering. Through our practice of mindfulness, we learn more and more about how to tolerate discomfort, unpleasantness, pain, and sorrow. As we become skilled at tolerating and investigating pain, we will be less likely to act in ways that are harmful. Eventually, we will come to understand that compassion is always the appropriate response to all painful experiences, and we will learn to meet all the pain in our lives and in the world with loving kindness and compassion. This is developed through mindfulness and the heart practices. Nonviolence. As we commit to nonviolence on every level of existence, we find that the world seems to become a safer place. Many addicts have lived a life of violence and abuse, if not physically, at least emotionally. Many of us come from backgrounds of neglect and trauma. For some, violence is all we have ever known, a necessary survival instinct to fight our way out of the hellish situations we were in. We understand this and have lived it too. We have found that a nonviolent way of life is much more conducive to recovery, perhaps even a necessity. It will take time and probably years of imperfection in this realm, but eventually the recovering addict can and will establish a life of nonviolent actions. There are many levels to violence and many subtleties to nonviolence. For most, not killing is the most obvious and easiest form of nonviolence. But when asked to include animals, fish, insects, and other sentient beings in the vow of nonviolence, many resist, sometimes violently. We also understand that we live in a world with a food chain and that some level of killing is unavoidable in order to survive. We know that even a vegan lifestyle kills insects and earthworms in the production of vegetables. We do not ask for perfection. It is impossible to go through life without harming anything, but we ask for a sincere attempt to minimize the amount of harm we cause. We try to abstain from intentionally killing. Then there is fighting, the non-lethal physical violence. Many addicts had found themselves in the occasional street brawl or bar fight, throwing dishes across the dining room or perhaps slapping their children or spouse. When we have no tolerance for pain and no patience with discomfort, we may strike out at others. When we have little or no control over our emotions, we can be involved in physical violence over and over again. As a part of the purification of our actions, karma, we turn towards nonviolence. No more fighting, hitting, or spitting. This does not, however, prohibit us from participating in sports or other physically aggressive activities, such as martial arts, boxing, roller derby, and slam dancing. Although it takes a more direct form, 
The way we communicate with the world can be another form of violence, one that we experience on a daily basis as both spectators and participants. Harsh speech, dirty looks, obscene gestures, and offensive texts and emails are also subtle forms of violence. Our communications have power, the ability to cause harm or harmony. It all comes back to our intention and actions. We don't have to become perfect to recover, but we must try to abstain from creating more negativity in our lives. Violent actions have negative karmic consequences, and that karma could manifest as the guilt, shame, or self-hatred that may lead us to relapse. So we abstain from all forms of violence to support our recovery. Just a pause to reflect on your own process of recovery, developing uh, more tolerance and compassion, committing more um, deeply to nonviolence. Maybe some of you come into recovery already committed to nonviolence. Uh, many of us didn't. My own experience was that I entered uh, my process of recovery coming from a place of engaging in, in lots of violent actions and violent speech, both internally and externally. And, and it was a slow process of, through mindfulness, as the text shares with us, uh, developing more tolerance for pain and not lashing out so much, and a slow process of um, becoming nonviolent, becoming less and less engaged in intentionally uh, causing harm. Honesty. As addicts, many of us have had to lie and steal to cover up our addictions. Many of us were lying and stealing even before we became addicts. And for some, lying and stealing was part of what we were addicted to. As we commit to recovery, we commit to honesty. The path of recovery demands honesty. You're unlikely to have much success in recovering if you can't even begin to tell the truth. Recovery begins when we honestly admit to our addictions and then make the conscious commitment to abstinence. Without honesty, honesty the recovery process cannot truly proceed. Some people may be able to maintain periods of abstinence while continuing to lie, cheat, and steal. But most will find that the karma of dishonesty will catch up with them in the forms of guilt, shame, and remorse. And this will often lead to relapse. We are trying to rebuild our lives, the lives torn apart by addiction, to build a solid foundation for our future, for a life of wisdom and compassion. Dishonesty must be abandoned. Stealing has many forms and connotations. There is the obvious cash register definition, which means to blatantly steal money or material goods from people. For most of us, this is not a huge problem. For some, however, greed and selfishness are so strong that this, that this form of stealing is a major temptation. 
Then there are the less obvious forms of stealing, like taking more than your share of something that was freely offered. For example, you pocket a few extra sugars at the coffee shop to bring home with you, or you steal a pen at the bank, or you line your pockets with plastic bags at the buffet and take an extra meal home with you. Then there are the non-material forms of stealing. For example, some people try to steal all our attention. They are the attention vampires who suck the life out of us, the self-centered people who constantly corner us and try to take us hostage into their personal dramas. We all know people like this, and many of us have probably been guilty of the same thing. How many times have you stolen someone else's time? and energy. Lying can also take different forms. There is the outright lie, intentionally saying something that is false. Then there is the embellishment, intentionally exaggerating or overselling something. The big fish stories, the I had a $2,000 a day habit, tall tales. Then there is the diminishing lie, when we tell only the partial truth, or we lessen the severity of it, the I only did it a couple of times line, or the I only lost a little money partial truth, or the it wasn't that bad qualification. Then there are the lies of omission. These are the true events or thoughts that we simply don't share. Perhaps you fail to tell your spouse about how much money you spent, or how much you earn, or how or you fail to mention you had lunch with an ex. Lies of omission allow us to delude others into believing something that is not true, or allowing them to believe something about us that is not so. All dishonesty has karmic consequences, and that karma could lead us to relapse, so we abstain from all forms of dishonesty to support our recovery. So again, just taking a moment to reflect on your process of recovery and the level of rigorous honesty, um, stealing, lying, taking what's not offered. And an invitation to recommit to these precepts as we go through this chapter, to recommit to uh, and, and as the book says over and over, we're not going to do this perfectly, but it be, you know, we realign our aspirations, our intentions. Refraining from sexual misconduct. Most addicts who come into recovery have some wounds regarding sexuality. Sex is a powerful, natural human energy. When we approach sex in a healthy way, it can be a source of great connection and joy. When we approach sex in an unhealthy way, however, it becomes a deep source of suffering. Some of our members have become addicted to sex. Others have forsaken it altogether. For the sex addict, creating one's own healthy ideal, bottom line behaviors and parameters will be necessary. For the rest of us, the simple guidelines of honesty and integrity in our sexual relationships are sufficient. 
This means refusing to engage in sexual activity with people who are in committed relationships with others, refraining from cheating on our partners, and only engaging in sexual activity with people who are age-appropriate and willing participants. This is all basic, common, ethical behavior, but many addicts turn from drugs and alcohol to other addiction or other addictions to sex as their next fix. When sex becomes recreational, people start to lose sight of ethics and responsibility. For many, periods of abstinence or celibacy will be a part of the recovery process. Sometimes stepping away from sex altogether is necessary to heal. To heal. But in general, our attitude towards sex is go for it as consenting adults, but you also need to accept the consequences. Enjoy all of the intimacy that sex brings, but be awake. Remember the truth of impermanence, that you are going to change and your partner is going to change, and you are probably not going to like it. Be willing to suffer the consequences of impermanence and go into it with your eyes open. All relationships end. Even happily ever, en even happily ever after ends in death and loss. Again, a moment to reflect on our relationship to sexuality and, um, and this truth of impermanence and, and in the second noble truth that shines light on the truth of the repetitive craving for sense pleasures and sexuality being one of the uh, most pleasurable experiences for most for most people um, and the tendency to to crave and cling and get attached and the suffering that therefore comes from it and of course the buddha and, and so many people chose choose celibacy rather than engaging and, and part of what I'm trying to say here, and my core belief, is that um, celibacy is an option, sex is a choice, and it's a choice that we have to bring our full mindfulness to, and, and then take full responsibility when we are unskillful, and the harm that we cause or the suffering that we cause ourselves from our own clinging and craving. One thing that I like here um, is that we're really saying that part of our spiritual practice, part of our mindfulness practice, part of our recovery is an engaged relationship with our sexuality. We're not not talking about this. We're turning towards it. We're using our uh, mindfulness that we're developing in our meditation to bring that into our relationships, into our relationship to sex and sexuality and impermanence and the whole process. So hope that makes sense. The next section is about forgiveness. Forgiveness is an action. The act of letting go of hatred and ill will towards others. We've explored the process and understanding of forgiveness in the first factor of the path. But this is where we put our understanding into action. A regular and consistent practice of the forgiveness meditation will be necessary. Even just 10 to 15 minutes a day of asking for 
and offering forgiveness in your meditation will train your mind and heart to let go and allow you to be free from the suffering of resentment. For addicts, it is necessary to take forgiveness a step further. While doing the inner work of letting go, we must also take direct relational action. The process of releasing the heart and mind's grasp on the past pains and betrayals almost always includes taking responsibility by making amends and offering forgiveness when it is appropriate and welcome. Very often this includes communication with those whom we have harmed, as well as those who have harmed us. This direct communication is the relational aspect of forgiveness. Making amends is healing and generous act. This in no way means that we have to reconcile with people who have harmed us, or that we should subject ourselves or others to further abuse. Part of the forgiveness and healing process is to create healthy boundaries. We may forgive someone, but choose never to interact with that person again. We must not confuse letting go of past injuries with feeling an obligation to let the injurers back into our life. The freedom of forgiveness often includes a firm boundary and a loving distance from those who have harmed us. We may likewise need to keep a loving distance from those whom we have harmed to keep them from further harm. To that extent, this practice of letting go of the past and making amends for our behavior is more internal than relational. We can let individuals back into our hearts without ever letting them back into our lives. Making amends to everyone that we have caused harm to, asking uh, for forgiveness, and I hope know this is clear, this clarity of it does not necessarily mean reconciliation, that healthy boundaries uh, are very important, that sometimes we feel like we have to hold on to our anger and our resentments because they're protecting us, uh, helping us keep a good boundary um, by staying angry. And um, what's being asked here in this Buddhist practice is uh, to let go of the suffering that that hatred and that anger creates in our own lives and uh, hold a, a, a firm boundary with uh, people who are not uh, healthy to have in your life. Action and engagement. Guiding principles. As recovering addicts, we are embarking on a spiritual path. This path consists of being wise and compassionate in our attitudes and actions. Through meditation, participation in community, and practicing the principles outlined in the Four Noble Truths. We will come into integrity and become honest and trustworthy again. Kindness will become our guiding principle. The way that we use the term kindness is in the context of what will end suffering and help us recover in each situation. The next kind of action depends on the circumstances. 
The kind thing to do is the skillful response in each given moment. For instance, when it comes to pleasurable experiences, the kind relationship to pleasure is always non-attached appreciation. If we can enjoy the pleasurable moments without clinging to them or getting caught in the craving for them to last forever, then we can avoid the typical suffering we often create around pleasure. So the kind thing to do is not to get attached. And if we're not able to meet the pleasure with non-attached appreciation, and if we have already become attached, then the kind thing to do is let go, which may mean a practice of renunciation or abstinence. The next level of kindness that is so often called for is patience with ourselves as we learn to let go. So then patience becomes another act of kindness. When our minds start judging us for not being very good at letting go, we respond with forgiveness. Forgiveness then is also an act of kindness. Get the picture? The kind thing to do depends on the situation. When it comes to painful experiences, the kind thing to do is to meet experience with compassion. Compassion ends suffering. It does not end pain, but it does take care of the extra level of suffering we tend to layer on top of our pain. And in that way, the kindest thing we can do is to cultivate tolerance and compassion towards pain. One of the situations where kindness becomes tricky is when we are faced with the possibility that our seemingly kind actions could actually be causing some harm, that we could be enabling someone to suffer more through, through our intentions to be kind. For instance, in the case of dealing with a friend or family member who is actively engaged in addiction, at some point in the relationship, a strong boundary is going to have to be set. While lending money to a friend in many cases could be seen as a generous and kind act, with the addict, it could actually cause more harm than good. Most of us face this dilemma on some level or another on a regular basis. When asked for money on the street by someone who appears to be homeless and intoxicated, is giving in a way that may very well lead to further addiction and suffering actually an act of kindness at all? In some cases, the kindest thing we can do may be to say no. Sometimes kindness means telling individuals the truth that they may not want to hear. At times, kindness may even hurt. Kindness doesn't ever have the intention of causing harm. Perhaps, in some situations, it's just unavoidable. Most of the time, our kindness will be felt and appreciated. Most of the time, people will come to love, appreciate, and feel safe around us due to our commitment to kindness. All our actions are important and pertinent to our recovery and spiritual awakening. As we become honest with ourselves, others will experience the joy of blamelessness. As we forgive ourselves and others and make amends to those we have caused harm, we will come to know the peace of mind and heart that is the happiness of debtlessness and freedom from ill will. 
when we are wise and careful with our sexuality, we create both internal and external safety. By not causing harm to ourselves or others, we create a solid foundation for our recovery. So we can pause and reflect for a moment on that uh, section on kindness and all of the way that it becomes situational. Sometimes it's non-attachment is the kind response. Sometimes forgiveness is the kind response. Sometimes saying no to someone is the kind response. Action and engagement. So open to um, questions, comments, some conversation with you about this. Um, just a reframing, uh, as it says at the beginning of this chapter. Um, these are the teachings of the Buddha. His, his, his awakening led him to understand that in order to get to awakening, um, we have to have a sober mind, freedom from intoxication. Uh, we have to purify our karma through being honest and nonviolent. And we have to be quite careful with our relationship to uh, the craving of sexuality. It's not in this piece here, but um, at one point the Buddha talks about uh, the, the desire, sexual love, human intimacy connection. He said it's so powerful. We're so wired. It's this wired for procreation towards um, what we can call sexuality. Uh, he said it's, it's the most powerful thing in existence. And if there was anything as equally powerful uh, as sexuality, he said nobody would get enlightened. He said we can muster the awareness, the wisdom, the renunciation to relate skillfully to sexuality. It's possible. He says, we've done, he says, I've done this. Other people have done this. It's possible to get free to, uh, whether, whether you're practicing celibacy and just, uh, abstaining from any sort of sexual action, or there's all of these beings that are also waking up in the midst of relationships, uh, engaging in sexuality and still becoming free. He said, but it's, this is, this is how we create suffering. It's the most pervasive form um, of suffering. And I know for myself, at a cursory glance at the world, that doesn't seem to be true. I, um, I look at the world and I mostly focus on all of the hatred and uh, ignorance and racism and oppression and classism and sexism and just all of the ignorance in the world. It seems like that causes more suffering. It seems more pervasive. But I feel like part of what the Buddha is saying, you know, there's uh, not everyone's experiencing oppression. There are people who aren't experiencing that. He said, but, but everyone is experiencing lust and craving and clinging. And everyone suffers at some point or another around sexuality. Um, and that that's, that's just more, more pervasive. Okay, a couple questions. I see a question here. 
uh, on Instagram that says, I struggle with the omission part of honesty. If you know the truth might harm, is omission the wiser uh, thing? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question, Michelle. It's, the issue here is about uh, wise speech. So there's um, four parts to wise speech. Is it true, right? So you're saying like, okay, there's something true. Um, is it the appropriate time? So sometimes we might skillfully omit blurting out the truth because it's not the right time. It's not the right uh, environment to have this conversation with somebody. Um, is it coming from a place? Uh, is it useful? You know, is it true? Is it useful? Is it the appropriate time? Is it is it coming from a place of kindness? So sometimes you might, you know, omit because it's not the right time, but later, important to be honest. So many people get caught in this trap. I have a lot of experience of being uh, on the other end of this. I have like a special sort of, um, I don't know, it's sort of an issue for me. I, I grew up with parents who believed that even when I was an adult, even when their children were adults, um, that it was better to lie to them uh, to try to protect them in some ways. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, I've studied Buddhism for so long. I believe in rigorous honesty so much. Uh, I think that at some point, depending on the nature of the relationship, that to have a truly intimate, truly connected um, relationship with, with, you know, if it's that level, if it's family, if it's, um, if, there's, if there's a closeness, then I think that we have to take the risk to tell the truth, even if it might harm even if the truth might be hard to hear, might be feel like make you uncomfortable, um, that that's where the, the highest level of in, uh, integrity is. But it, again, it really depends on the nature of the relationship. You know, you we have to practice some discernment around who are we talking to. A couple questions over here. Is calling someone out on their bad behavior, the harm they have caused you, compassionate? Is this okay? Is calling someone out on their bad behavior, the harm they have caused you, compassionate? Is this okay? Again, um, I want to kind of take the same. It's so hard to answer, honestly, like it's so hard to answer these questions without knowing the nature of the relationship. Um, I believe in speaking truth to power, to, uh, to people. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I think it's important to be willing to have some conflict and um, to call people out sometimes. But it depends on the nature of the relationship and um, whether or not we can uh, come from that, you know, sort of like I statement, and, you know, I felt harmed in this way, in this situation, um, without just the sort of blame and shame. And um, so how do we practice it? And then also looking, what is my intention in 
calling someone else out? Um, am I trying to harm them because they harmed me, so I'm trying to harm them? Or am I truly trying to um, just communicate and be honest and, uh, and and maybe let them know? Perhaps they didn't even know. Maybe it was unintentional and they didn't even know. And in that case, you know, it's often if we can do it in a way of taking responsibility for this is how it felt, um, it will land better most of the time with people. Um, Now, the other piece there is I believe that there's um, you know when we when we cause harm or when someone causes harm to us, what we're saying here in refuge, what the Buddha said is you know we own the karma. So we don't have to go around trying to police everyone else's karma. They're responsible for their actions. If we're suffering about it, our primary practice is forgiveness, to free ourselves from the suffering of holding on to resentment. Sometimes it's appropriate to have that communication, as it said in this piece, that, that direct um, communication, especially if they ask us for forgiveness, then it's appropriate to um, say, uh, I forgive you, or I'm as much as I can, or I'm in the process of forgiving you, or... Um, I once said to my father, uh, I forgive you. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, uh, and I said, well, I'm trying to forgive you. I'm in the process of forgiving. He said, yeah, that's better, you know, to make these blatant, like, I forgive you when, you know, there's moments of forgiveness and there's moments of non-forgiveness. So, um, Again, I think it depends on the situation, whether or not we communicate with the people that have bad behavior. Uh, Joshua is saying for the right speech uh, that they like, is it true? Is it fair? Is it necessary? Zach is asking, uh, how have you been able to tolerate the ignorance, especially with what's going on right now. Being empathetic, I feel it, and I've seen others around me physically struggle with the hate. Part of what um, mindfulness does is it gives us more and more tolerance and gives us more and more compassion and we develop a greater sense of ability to be with our own suffering and the suffering of others and the ability to see both the incredible suffering um, that racism is creating in this country and has been creating for hundreds and hundreds of years and how it's continuing and to empathize and to have compassion for that. Uh, my experience is that uh, it's the meditation practice that develops that, uncovers that empathetic and that compassionate heart and gives us enough room to feel it, to be with it, to be present with it. 
and it's painful and the willingness to feel pain one of one of the ways compassion is talked about and, and empathy is talked about is the willingness to feel the pain of others and be unco be uncomfortable mindfulness gives us more and more ability to expand our capacity for pain and, and confusion and suffering. Richard's asking, what do you feel about tough love? What about parents who practice tough love with their kids by kicking them out, denying them support, even disowning them? Could this be kindness? I don't know. Sometimes yes, sometimes uh, sometimes it's a little too preemptive. I do think that um, depending on the age, uh, I don't know, it does seem like there is a, a, a tendency to enable and sometimes keep our children stuck or keep our loved ones kind of stuck rather than um, I was telling this story recently my own I, I don't I don't feel like it was really tough love but when I was a teenager I was 15 years old and um, I was living with my father at the time and I said uh, I'm gonna drop out of school and uh, hit the streets and I was already in active addiction I'd already been arrested a whole bunch of times I was, you know, I, was, I wasn't like in a good place. <laughs> um, I was a troubled kid. And my father's kind of, I don't know, I don't think it was tough love. It, I think it was sort of a hippie irresponsibility on some level. He just said, go for it. And he said, you know, let's go to the lawyers. We'll sign up this emancipation. You want to you wanna be an adult? Go. Good luck. And, you know, with a sort of like, I love you, good luck, go be a man. And, you know, and I got strung out and I got locked up and I, a bunch of felonies and, and I got sober. And then years later after I was sober and I, you know, like all of my other friends were getting shipped off to, you know, rehab and, you know, all of this other stuff was going on. And I was just like on the streets, living in the squats, you know, just like running wild. And... Years later, when I got sober, I asked my father, I was like, what the fuck were you thinking? I was a 15-year-old kid. Uh, I was using drugs all of the time. You didn't know the extent, but you knew I was been arrested and was using regularly and, you know. He said, I thought that if I was too tough, you know, the sort of tough love. He said, if I, if I thought I was too tough and I just, like, uh, sent you to rehab and you know, or, or tough love, you know, in, in some other way. Um, he said, I thought it would maybe backfire and that I would lose connection to you and that when you were ready for help, um, you wouldn't reach out to me. He said, and look, you were 17 years old, you were strung out, you were locked up, uh, and you reached out for help and I taught you meditation and look at how great your life has become. <laughs> I know this is not the... Um, real example of what you're asking for about tough love uh but just my some of my personal experience with that um uh...
another question over here. Someone's on, on Instagram, uh, Kennedy is saying, when friends or loved ones burn bridges because of untrue information or biased judgment, when they refuse to hear the truth, what can we do in terms of reaching out or trying to right these rumors? I don't really know, Kennedy. Um, I've been in that exact uh, place, uh, am in that exact place in my life where there is a bunch of misinformation, uh, untrue gossip, rumors. Um, and, I, you know, I must admit that I'm not personally in the habit of trying to convince people of what's true and what's not unless I'm asked. Um, a lot of bridges were burned, a lot of um, in my life. And I mostly just uh, let go of those um, and moved on to the people around me who uh, were trusting where there was, where the, you know, kind of, where there was love, where there was loyalty, where there was integrity, where people are actually interested in, in hearing the truth. Um, some people are just not going to be interested uh, in hearing the truth. And some of those bridges, I think, um, and I might be projecting a lot of this. I don't know what your situation is, Kennedy, but in my experience, I feel like a lot of those bridges are just unrepairable. The harm that um, people can cause behind uh, false information, sometimes it's just not repairable. Um... On the YouTube channel, Leo is saying, my issue with omission is more that I fear the other person's reaction. I avoid letting people know how I'm impacted or my experience, how I'm impacted or my experience to my own detriment in personal relationships. Yeah. Uh, I, and, uh, yes. I think a lot of us do that. I think it's common to uh, not tell the truth because we don't want to rock the boat because we don't want someone else's reaction. Um, there's that section there at the end of the book where it says, you know, the more honest we become in all of areas of our life, the more we experience the happiness of blamelessness. So if we're living in a good level of integrity um, and we're in a relationship or community with people who have some level of of wisdom that um, we can tell them the whole truth without fear of being harmed or rejected or, or blamed because uh, you know, hopefully we're not behaving in any ways that are, are too terrible. Russ is asking, do you think that some of us could be addicted to anger and even outrage. Could that be part of the compulsion to check the news all the time lately? Um, yes, absolutely. 
you know, us addicts, we can get addicted to both that which feels pleasant and also to a habitual, repetitive rewounding of ourselves. Um, I was reading one article about gambling addiction and it was especially about um, people that become addicted to uh, slot machines and how in the study and they kind of did the EEGs and they did all of that and the part of your mind that lights up when you win and the part of the mind that lights up when you lose isn't so different and that they found that actually there's a way in which people can get addicted to losing which I think is this sort of like to the anger to the regret to the outrage to the uh, grief like that, that there is a way that we can become so uh, it's intense I just want that intense feeling whether it's pleasant or uh, or it's painful so I think that the answer is yes we can absolutely become so compulsive about doing things over and over that we know don't feel good but they feel intense and anger and rage makes us feel so alive and so solid and justified and um, so I think absolutely it can become part of the addictive process Uh, Jeremy says, if we refrain from all sexual activity, how would we know we are healing and where do we go from there? I guess my question is, um, the way that you frame the question, Jeremy, healing what? Um, I, can't, I, I can't really say. I've, I've actually spent a couple of periods um, of celibacy. I, I spent a couple of years celibate in my 20s and um, a couple years ago when I had some of my own uh, sexual misconduct, I uh, spent a, six months celibate and as my own sort of process of reflecting on why I had engaged uh, in a relationship with somebody that was in another relationship and um, I feel that I've learned a lot from celibacy and that actually quite healing to, to be non-reactive to sexual desire and lust and that there's a lot that's because, you know, just abstaining from uh, sexual activity doesn't make you abstain from desire or feelings or cravings. And so we can learn so much. We can heal so much from seeing the impermanent the impersonal and the unreliable nature of lust and craving and and loneliness and um, you know I use this term healing a lot uh, healing uh, the suffering that is experienced as greed hatred and delusion and celibacy can give us a, a real freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion by not um, participating in something that we often cling to. Uh, if you're on Instagram, there's 30 seconds left. This is about to cut off. 
we're just about out of time. I'm going to take one more question on um, on YouTube. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, I'll be back next Thursday. We should be moving to Zoom. Keep an eye out for the Zoom uh, sign-up stuff. We'll post it on social media. You'll you'll get the memo. We should be able to do this in Zoom next week. Let me take this last question. From Dana or Donna. It says, so death. How do I support my grandmother who is in her mid eighties and in intensive care from a non COVID condition and may make the transition into death soon? Tonglen? Just a moment. You know, um, this is a big question. Uh, how do we best support someone who's making the transition to death soon. I'm just going to tell you a story because uh, I don't know the answer, but I, uh, the story that I love about uh, Ram Dass, who was, maybe you know who Ram Dass was, and famous teacher. And he, uh, his stepmother was dying and he went and was uh, at her bedside and it was when he was in his full guru mode and he started chanting all of the right buddhist chants and hindu chants and doing all of these death rituals and um and his 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 loved one just said like fucking stop it <laughs> stop being buddhist on me and um and then he just sat there and just I think held her hand and just just was present, and um, and she loved it. She loved just the loving presence. Uh, and he he said something that um, you know, they love you when you're being the Buddha, not when you're being Buddhist. Something like that. Uh, I think I butchered that story, but anyways, this like we certainly don't want to do anything to them, but and I like you said Tonglen. Absolutely, we can sit with dying people, with loved ones, with, and breathe in their pain and breathe out compassion for their pain. Or we can just sit there with loving kindness phrases, with compassion phrases, with just developing that kind heart, inclining our heart towards kindness and love and appreciation and, um, you know, and just expressing how much you've appreciated your grandmother and uh, wishing her well in transition with whatever she believes, uh, whether she thinks heaven and hell or she thinks lights out or, or maybe reincarnation, just condition unconditionally supporting people where they're at. I'm going to leave it there for tonight. And again, uh, we're going to move to Zoom next week, so please join us on Zoom, then we'll be able to see each other and engage. Sorry for the start, stop, restart tonight. And um, this should be posted 
later on YouTube. I actually live on Facebook, I believe. If you'd like to be generous and support Refuge Recovery, um, we've just posted the link to the donate page. Uh, I don't receive any money for these lectures. I'm just doing that, doing this as a, a support and a um, act of service. And um, if you'd like to financially support Refuge Recovery, please do. We're in need of gathering some foundation for the work that we're doing, spreading the message, and uh, helping you know the World Services Organization to, to, to be there as a support for all of the meetings. And an encouragement um, to be of service. Be of service in your life. Be of service in refuge recovery. Um, start meetings. Uh, volunteer at meetings. Uh, engage in the online meetings. I know in some places we're about to go back into in-person meetings. Get involved. You know, we have our meditation practice. We have our mentoring each other. We have our doing our inventories. All of the different aspects of refuge and a core aspects is service, engagement. Be generous in the program with each other, with the program um, to, to help support this thing so that it continues and is beneficial to as many suffering beings as possible. Thank you. May any goodness that comes be shared in all directions with all beings. Together may we create a positive change on this planet. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery Path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online refuge recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of refuge recovery groups around the world. Thank you for listening.